обещал любезный совсем не под пару. Ты цветочка кроза родного Кавказа. Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. And I'm your fellow co-host, Rusana Novikova. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and patrons who give monthly contributions anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, and I hope you do, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Euronaut. That's E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T or to Euronaut.org and hit that patron button and become a monthly patron. So, Rusana, um, last week I promised listeners that we would tell them a bit about what we have planned for them. So why don't we do a little talking and explain? First off, welcome back, everybody. I'm glad you stuck around while the pod was on hiatus. As Sean just mentioned, we took some time off not only to change the name and the logo, but also to revamp the format. Um, Sean has been doing book interviews for, what, like 10 years now? Yeah, if I include my uh, short stint at the New Books Network and then doing this podcast by myself for eight years, yeah, I've been doing <laughs> interviews for maybe about 10 years, is it correct? Uh, you know, I, I like to say there's over 300 at this point. So, so yeah, and the idea was, is, you know, it just, it's not very creative to just do these interviews. So I thought we'd mix things up and, and really try to like grow our talent and, and what we give listeners. Right. And we thought that it's perhaps time to move on to greener pastures. Interviews with experts are not going anywhere. But apart from that, we want to experiment with storytelling and introduce more narrative pieces like the one about Teddy and um, Stalin. Yeah, like if and if you haven't listened to my documentary Teddy Goes to the USSR, which I want to say again was nominated for an award for best DIY podcast, um, or if you haven't listened to the first episode of Gift of Stalin, I highly recommend you go there, do that, and you'll get an idea of, of where we're going to take things. Um, also, we're we're planning some more other types of formats, um, some non-narrated formats. We're still going to have straight interviews as before, but we're also going to do more thematic series. And the first one we're going to do, which will start next episode, is on the Far East. And Rusana, since the Far East is kind of your thing, why don't you tell us about what your reasoning was for proposing this as a topic? Well, the first reason is because I'm here. So we we thought uh, we'd use this opportunity to interview local experts on the ground. Um, the second reasoning is we wanted to talk about Russia, but Russia beyond Moscow and Petersburg. Uh, it's a big country and it's very different. And I think the Far East has a lot to offer. So what do we have in store? We scheduled a few interviews with experts. Uh, there's also going to be one piece, one uh, narrated piece uh, on Sahalin that I'm doing based on my dissertation of fieldwork. And then there's also going to be one episode with local musicians and poets. So stay tuned. Yeah, we'll see how it comes out. And I think the other idea, just to add, just to add to what Rusana said about you know why focus on the Far East, uh, you know, it's it's actually a really dynamic place nowadays, particularly with the the relationship between Russia and China. It's it's good to look at the history of that region and and the, those various cross cultural relationships and histories and you know the whole thing. So um i i think it's a great idea to focus on such a large region of of russia so that series will begin next week um but this week we have the second part of a story i've been working on called a gift for stalin so sean i've been meaning to ask you why did you choose to make an episode about Stalin and this particular gift to Stalin? Um, well, first off, when I was in graduate school, Arch Getty used to give this set of documents as part of our language exam. Uh, and and so it has this kind of, you know, it's been around in my head for a while. And Maya and I, my partner, we had this idea years ago to write something about it, to write an article. And that just never happened. And then a couple of years ago, when I was thinking of uh, like trying to diversify the format, um, I had this idea to do exactly this, take a, like a document or two and do a story about it, putting it in context and, and really something kind of quirky that maybe listeners would not expect. 
And this document, you know, a turd mailed to Stalin is a perfect example of one of those quirky moments. Um, and, and see what to make up just to be playful and make something out of it. I mean, I'm not trying to make, you know, any kind of academic argument. I just want it to be interesting and fun. Um, so that, that's the basic idea is why I tried to, I wanted to do that. So, and it, it was a lot of fun making because I got to read about a bunch of stuff I've never, I haven't read in a long time or had never read before. So it's quite exciting. Yeah. And it's a very timely piece. I feel with the rising kind of with the resurgence of the cult of Stalin, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's good to kind of remind ourselves and maybe, well, I don't know if we have any listeners coming in from Russia, but um, to kind of dismantle the, the figure of Stalin yet again. Yeah. So um, I hope you enjoy this next episode of A Gift to Stalin, part two, uh, The Accursed Share. <laughs> This podcast contains cuss words, so discretion is advised. Otherwise, let them roll. It all started with a letter to Stalin in 1935, and when a Kremlin clerk opened it, there was a piece of shit inside. Was the turd an insult, a way of saying to Stalin, you're a shit, here's some shit? Perhaps. But I ended part one of A Gift for Stalin on a different note, that the turd addressed to Stalin was no slight at all. It was, in fact, a gift. A little brown present for Comrade Stalin. This is A Gift for Stalin, the second of two episodes about a turd mailed to the Soviet dictator and what it might have meant in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. This is episode two. The Accursed Share. Now, I'm going to put a pin in the gift idea for now. Let it stew in your brain. But don't forget it. We'll come back to it at the end. I promise. I got to explain some things first. Now, every society must deal with shit. Where to put it? what to do with it, it's a problem unique to humans. One might even say it defines us as human. The average person excretes about a half a kilo of crap a day, and left untreated, shit is deadly. About 2.6 billion people live without basic sanitation, and as a result, excrement finds its way onto feet, fingers, food, and into water. Scientists estimate people lacking sanitation in just about 10 grams of fecal a day. Shit-related illnesses account for 2.2 million deaths a year, mostly children from extreme diarrhea. So shit happens, all the time, and dealing with it is a life-or-death situation. But human waste has another history, a circular history, where human excrement is put back into the cycle of production. And many societies have tried just that. They use human waste as fertilizer. Shit, that is, digested food, is returned to the earth to produce more food. Shit may be filth, it may be poison, but it can't be denied. Waste is part of life. I turned to two people for this episode. Lena Zeldovich, I'm a New York-based journalist covering science, health, sustainability, and the environment. I'm also the author of The Other Dark Matter, the science and business of turning waste into wealth and health. The Other Dark Matter looks at the long history of human feces as a life-saving resource, from food to fecal transplants. I also talked to Elliot Borenstein. He's a professor of Russian and Slavic studies at New York University. Elliot is a graphomaniac when it comes to Russian culture. He's written about masculinity, pussy riot, conspiracies, comic books, memes, identity, sex, film, violence, and more. Like in episode one, I wanted Lena and Elliot's reactions to the turd to Stalin fiasco. I love this source. I think it's just, it's absolutely fantastic. So looks like Russians were actually the inventors of this really interesting method of bioterrorism. And that I think just reminds us of the weird dailiness of life even under Stalin. If I were to think about it through the Chinese or Japanese lens, 
I tell you that the people who mailed it to Stalin meant to pay him a huge compliment. But somehow I think that the people who sent him this piece of shit were Soviet citizens and they meant exactly that. But what struck Lena and Elliot most, besides someone having the guts to ship Stalin a turd, was... This woman's reaction, the hysterical blindness, everything about that, right? On the one hand, there's the kind of reflexive medical sexism of women in hysteria. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It actually looks like they fell and hit their heads. And I think what they had was a mild concussion. And with mild concussions, you can lose your eyesight for a little bit. Um, on the other hand, there's the completely sensible notion of some sort of psychological reaction in being confronted with this, right? Because this woman, through no fault of her own, becomes involved in a story that involves Stalin and a piece of shit. And in those times, you do not want to be part of a sentence that has Stalin and shit in it. It would make sense. It would provoke total panic. That was my guess. I couldn't really come up with any possible explanation. I don't think it was anything in those pieces of shit that had such an immense power as to like take somebody's eyesight away. I don't think people who mailed it had access to any technologies that could do that. I think they just they took a dump and, and mailed it. It's an expression of really personal contempt. There's something so personal about all of this, right? Like if, if we're assuming that, for instance, it's the sender's own shit. And it's also very much undercutting the recipient, in this case, in particular, Stalin, right? I mean, Stalin's symbolic body was so important. And presumably, people didn't go around thinking too much about Stalin shitting. But having having shit sent to you in, in some ways also a reminder that you produce shit. That Stalin is human like the rest of us. His defecation humbles his deification. And that's just it. I want to know the history of people's relationship with the product of their sphincteric labor. And one theme of Alina's book is the way some cultures treated human crap as a commodity to be collected, bought, sold, and returned to production. I'll start with a little story which I you know, mentioned in the book. So It's 17th century Japan, Lena tells me, and the local authorities in the port city of Osaka get complaints about the offensive odors coming from the harbor. Now, early modern Osaka was a bustling city, and ships brought tea, rice, silk, fish, and all kinds of things. But there were some other vessels that also came to port and they carried less agreeable material, namely human waste. The Japanese called it shimagaya. And shimagaya collectors went around the city and scooped up poop in buckets and carts and loaded them onto the boats. Which they then shipped to local farmers um, who used it to grow food. And fittingly, the word, the very word shimagaya literally meant fertilizer from the bottom of a person. And this human compost was part of an elaborate system of exchange. They viewed it as an ultimate commodity. It had all prices, values you know, attached to it. And there was a system of gathering it and a system of rules and regulations of how to gather, how to process, who could do what. And it's really fascinating because very few other cultures created such sophisticated systems to deal with their own shit. Japan wasn't alone in peddling shit, or as it's officially called, night soil. The night soil trade operated in many parts of the world. The Chinese had a particularly elaborate night soil economy. Called the business of the golden juice, traders set up night soiled storage and trading houses where farmers could bid on the muck. The collection and use of night soil in East Asia was pretty widespread, despite differences in place and culture. They call it night soil because they pick those pots in the morning when people put them out the door after the night. And there they processed it. They spread, dried, and sorted it for sale. But not all shit is created equal. Social hierarchy wormed into people's bowels. Rich people's poop was pricier than the poor. They ate better, so their turds were considered more nutrient-rich. And human was always better than animal. I gotta tell you, when I was researching all this for the book, I was like, hmm, were there like counterfeit cases of shit? I could see somebody selling pig shit and telling you, hey, this is human shit. And, and, and farmers who I am sure were like not stupid at all could tell was what were like, mm -mm, bullshit. <laughs> and shit as a valuable commodity produced some interesting practices. So when people visited friends and came to dinner and ate at their house, a polite thing to do was to go and take a dump to give these riches back 
to them. And people who didn't do it were considered kind of like frugal and were kind of like gossiped about, like, did you know that these people actually don't do this? Ugh. But coveting crap didn't end there. Shit was used in medicine. Take China, for example. They had a very different view of human excrement. They were some really complex preparations in, in which the Buddhist monks, who supposedly had very healthy diets and they had very healthy you know, poo, um, they would bury their poo in jars for like five or ten years. And, and when they would dug them out, there was nothing left. It's just kind of like this near-transparent liquid, slightly slightly golden color. They call it the golden juice. And they gave it to people to drink and supposedly legitimately cured a lot of ailments. This medical knowledge has made a comeback in the last 20 years. Doctors now use fecal implants to combat serious bacterial infections. And though initial treatments administered the poop through an enema or down a tube from the nose to the gut, now fecal transplants come in pills of freeze-dried shit. And it's no laughing matter. Fecal transplants have an 80 to 90% effective rate. Eating shit can literally save lives. Yet I wondered why Japan and China dealt with human waste so differently than in, say, Europe. And I myself wanted to know why such incredibly stark difference between East and West. Lena says that the reason is right there in the soil. So societies that were blessed with good soils or had a lot of cattle didn't learn to value their excrement. Europeans had rich land and manure for fertilizer, whereas... Japan was not blessed with fertile land at all. It was a small country with a lot of mountains, few forests and meadows, so no trees to cut, no places to graze, and no cattle. Now, there were exceptions. Many European towns relied on night soil collectors as well. In France, they were called the Vie de Gers, night soil men in America. In Russia, they were Zolotars, or Asanizators. In England, gong farmers. Right, tonight, you're going to be collecting night soil. What's night soil? Night soil is what ends up in the privy. That's what we can smell now, isn't it? That's what you can smell now, all right? Now, the way this is going to work is you dig it out the privy and you put it in a cart. Any questions, lads? Do we have to? Oh, yes. These men drained cesspits and removed waste from streets. Some was sold off to local farmers, but most of the sewage was dumped into nearby waterways. No elaborate system of collection and exchange developed in Europe, like in Japan or China. European cities were downright filthy. 17th century Parisians were famous for chucking their chamber pots from windows. In the Louvre, people shit in courtyards, on stairs and balconies, and even behind doors. And as urban populations boomed, so did the mountains of muck. By the late 18th and 19th centuries, pouring poop in rivers reached a health crisis. London and Paris, the capitals of modernity, were also metropoles of shit. London alone had four mid-century cholera epidemics, culminating in the Great Stink of 1858. So people's effluent, people's excrement was flowing directly into the waterways for the first time of London, into the rivers, and then into the River Thames. People drew their drinking water out of the River Thames. They were drinking their own excrement. Yuck. But it was worse than that, because the excrement went up and down the Thames and couldn't escape. This crisis ushered in a culture of flushing, the mass expansion of private toilets and sewerage, and the passage of laws regulating the disposal of human waste. Population growth, industrialization, and ideas equating civilization with cleanliness broke the circular nature of production. Toilets and sewage allowed Europeans to flush and forget and the collection and reuse of night soil quickly died out. Marxists call this severing of waste from production and consumption the metabolic rift, that capitalism alienates humans from nature, town from country, workers from labor, and production from consumption. And of course, from the product of all collective human labor, our own shit. To discard, denigrate, and deny shit is to reject humanity. What does this all have to do with Russia? Well, Lena says, Russia sits in between Eastern and Western attitudes towards human waste. The Westerners have been so far removed from their metabolic output for longer. In the Soviet Union, especially in the villages, there were no centralized sewage systems. There were outhouses. 
And so shit, that stinky fermenting shit that accumulated in them for months, if not years, was part of life. Lena's own upbringing speaks to this. She grew up in Soviet times on her grandfather's farm outside of Kazan. Every fall. He would open that cesspool, put on heavy gloves, heavy boots, uh, this kind of like special overall suit, and it would take two heavy buckets, big buckets, and you dip it into the cesspool and distributed contents onto our farm. But most of it went into his compost pits. And after three years, his compost pits had... No biomass left, no sewage, no shit, no nothing. Just rich black dirt teeming with worms. And it smelled so good. It smelled of the promise of the next harvest. And he used to say that you have to feed the earth the way you feed people. And so I never viewed sewage as waste. I always considered it more for treasure than a nuisance, a part of that cycle. The idea of returning poop back to the earth is found in the Russian language. In Russian, the word for fertilizer is udobrenie, which comes from the word dobro, meaning good and rich. So udobrenie meant returning all that good stuff back to earth. And, and even the common toilet jokes use those words. Like when my younger cousins were being potty trained, we jokingly referred to the moment that they had to go as giving out the bro or bogatstvo, the riches. Even the Russian word for gold is connected to shit. According to Vladimir Dahl's dictionary of the Russian language, gold, zolota, can also mean waste. Night soil is nochnoi zolota, literally night gold. And the word for the guys that clean cesspits, zolotar. There's that root for gold again. And Russia's not alone here. The link between gold and filth has ancient roots. We're all familiar with the idea of money being dirty. In ancient Babylonia, gold was called the feces from hell. But keep in mind that the relation between shit and gold isn't just one way. If gold equals shit, then shit also equals gold. Shit is capital. As Lena says, it allows you to produce riches. Like I said, we didn't call it waste. We looked at it at, as udabrania. It went back to a farm. It grew food every season. And if you didn't do it, the earth would grow barren. Urbanization in Russia kicked into high gear in the late 19th century. Moscow's population grew by three times, hitting two million in 1917. That's about one million kilos of crap daily. And that doesn't include animals. Moscow's few sewer canals couldn't handle all this muck nor could an army of Zolotar. The city issued laws to criminalize the dumping of human waste. Police served stiff fines and even imprisoned culprits up to three months. And most people ignored them and dumped their waste into city drains anyway. Moscow's modern sewer system wasn't completed until 1898, a latecomer by decades compared to some European capitals. And even then, by 1908, only about 200 buildings were connected to Moscow's three sewer lines, all located in the central districts of a rapidly ballooning city. That was a few lines from At the Top of My Voice by the Russian futurist poet and Bolshevik partisan Vladimir Mayakovsky. It reads, I, a cesspool cleaner and waterman by the revolution mobilized and drafted. I want to pause on Mayakovsky's sewer cleaner, a worker in the lowest job cleaning the dirtiest basis substance. But the revolution spurs him into action and pulls him out of the muck. Soviet newspapers profiled a few of these upwardly mobile sewer men in the 1930s, like the article Cesspit Cleaner to Assistant Director in Pravda in November 1932. In it, Abdul Ali Reza recounts his climb from a sewage cleaner in Baku to a deputy in a crude oil processing plant. He attributes all of this to the revolution, without which, he says, none of it would have been possible. Just look where I was then and where I am now. One goal of the Soviet state was just that, to take the cesspit cleaners of the world and mold them into new people, a new Soviet person fit for the communist future. And let's say, just for the sake of argument, Stalin's feces forwarding friend was one such new Soviet person. So who was this new Soviet person? And what was the relationship to his own shit? I put the question to Elliot Borenstein. 
actually prefer the sexist translation. What Elliot means here is that though new Soviet person is the best translation of the Russian Novi Sovietsky Chelovek, he prefers new Soviet man because... Really, whenever they're talking about the new Soviet Chelovek, they're talking about men. If they're not talking about men, then they talk about the new Soviet woman. So I think we're actually doing a disservice to the gender politics of the Soviet Union by making them seem better than they actually were. Elliot says that the new Soviet man is entirely dedicated to building communism. Because of that, or in relation to that, his own personal bodily needs always come secondary. On the one hand, he should be strong, he should be fit, um, and then all other needs are really subsumed to this ideological project. Your body is really there as a vehicle for what you're doing for the, for the country. Moreover, the new Soviet man was to be politically conscious, disciplined, selfless, cultured, sober, and mild-mannered. The word anal comes to mind. The ideal body is one that can work, one that is healthy, one that does not cause problems, um, and then then otherwise can be left more or less unattended. All the other things we might think of as needs beyond basic needs, certainly needs for pleasure and so on and so forth, those get reconfigured in terms of organized leisure. But otherwise, once you reach a certain threshold, I think the body's kind of a distraction. At the same time, it's not like the Bolsheviks reinvented the wheel here. Part of what's going on with this new Soviet man or new Soviet person is this modern civilizing project. A project not too different from what occurred in Europe in the 18th and 19th centuries. And the body's cleanliness was a key quality of this anal man. As one Soviet advice column stated in the late 1930s, a person cannot be called cultured if he does not keep his body clean. Where in the 1920s, we have huge efforts in public health. A lot of it is really about teaching what we now think of as basic hygiene. And this, this you know, brings you into the civilized world. The ideal Soviet body was a hygienic, harmonized body. Some even imagined it as melding flesh to metal, a man-machine. Socialist man was to conquer nature, mold it to his will, and even overcome the biology of his own body. Nature is the enemy. Nature is there to be tamed. Nature is there to be conquered. Nature is feminine. Um, nature is associated with everything about the body that really should be suppressed and ignored in favor of industrialization, which does bring you kind of back to the machine. And this includes the body's waste. In terms of representation, the Soviet body almost has no waste. Elliot says there's nothing particularly Soviet about avoiding waste. It's a taboo subject in many cultures. But the idea of the body as an icky, fluid-excreting meat sack went well with Soviet culture. And in particular with this notion of disciplining the body, because um, Soviet ideology takes itself so seriously, right? And has so little room for the spontaneity of the human body and all of that. All of these things end up being troped together with all the things that are kind of inherently, if not counter-revolutionary, unrevolutionary. Mastering the body covered everything from brushing one's teeth bathing, wearing clean underwear and clothes, and yes, using the toilet. In his memoirs, Nikita Khrushchev spoke about what he called the people's primitive backgrounds. Most had never seen a toilet and didn't even think peeing and shitting indoors was a thing. They saw it as indecent. They were used to going outside. Mr. K then related this memory. It's the early 1920s and he's billeted in a former noble's estate outside of Krasnodar. We hadn't been in the dormitory two days before it became impossible even to enter the bathroom. Why? Because the people in our group didn't know how to use it properly. Instead of sitting on the toilet seat so that others could use it, they perched like eagles on top of the seat and mucked the place up terribly. At the mine where I worked after the Civil War, there was a latrine. But the miners misused it so badly that you had to enter on stilts if you didn't want to track filth home. I remember I was once sent to install some mining equipment. The miners lived in barracks with double-decked bunks. It wasn't unusual for them to simply piss over the side. You might ask, why is Khrushchev telling us such unpleasant things? Well, it's that such conditions persisted for a long time. It took decades for people to overcome their primitive habits. Well, in defense of these primitive habits, toilets in early Soviet Russia were few and far between. And by all accounts, their conditions were horrible. Soviet hygiene propaganda paid little attention to the commode. And the few times it did, 
and emphasized the health hazards of its improper use. Children were advised to crap in the eagle position to avoid touching muck. Hygienists urged the use of toilet paper and hand washing. Though toilet paper wasn't produced in the USSR until 1969, newspaper was the go-to instead. And don't forget, flush after every use, as one poster commanded, assuming said toilet was flushable, which was a rarity. Nor were private toilets a solution. Moscow's population was 2.7 million in 1931, and most people lived in some kind of communal quarters, worker barracks, and apartments. Usually outhouses or latrines for barracks, and toilets for apartments. But usually only one per ten people or so, sometimes even more. The number of available private privies is unknown. Only 150,000 were produced in 1929, to be bumped up to 280,000 in the first five-year plan for the entire country. Hardly enough to close the toilet gap. Even the Soviet press grumbled about the lack of toilets, closed public restrooms, broken and dilapidated latrines, or their sheer absence. As Pravda declared in 1935, after listing Moscow's shuttered public toilets, there are still rusty troughs on the street, but even those are getting fewer and fewer every year. Also, these troughs only serve one half of humanity. One wonders, what do women do? Even a complaint about a boss hoarding the bathroom key found its way into the papers. So the state of public toilets was no small matter. Even Stalin took interest. In 1934, Khrushchev was told that Stalin wanted to talk to him. So he rang up the leader's apartment. When I called, he said to me, Comrade Khrushchev, there are rumors that the public toilet situation in Moscow is bad. People run around not knowing where to relieve themselves. It's an unpleasant and awkward situation. Think about ways to create suitable conditions in the city in this regard. Later, Stalin outlined the task more specifically. He said it was necessary to create decent pay toilets, and that was done. And all this was thought up by none other than Stalin. Despite the dictator's attention, putrid public privies persisted right up until the end of the Soviet Union. In The History of Shit, Dominique Laporte connects sanitizing cities with the purification of language. And this bond between social and linguistic hygiene fits well for our story. All of Moscow is under scaffolding was a common expression in the 1930s. Stalin promised to remake the capital to reflect the grandeur and beauty of the socialist epoch. New Moscow was to be a model of cleanliness. Youth brigades fanned out to pick up trash. The sewer system expanded to snake through the capital's inner districts. By 1938, the Lubin aeration station came online to process over a million cubic meters of sewage a day. Toilets and indoor plumbing were standard fixtures in every new building design, complete with ratios on how many toilets and urinals per occupant. Primers advised scrubbing communal toilets daily, minimizing crapping time, patience when waiting, and other courtesies when doing the deed. Parks were to have gendered public restrooms decorated in greenery, and for every metro station, a toilet. Freud wrote that civilization demands three requirements, cleanliness, order, and beauty. Moscow would become a utopian metropolis, the opposite of shit, filth, and muck. It's actually a common feature in a lot of utopias and dystopias, like what do you do with shit? In Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, Anything that doesn't fit in the utopian society is referred to as excremental. And um, you can see a lot of moments in Soviet culture when there seems to be this notion of like, the utopian world, you have to cast stuff out. And casting out didn't just mean filth, but people as well. The introduction of internal passports in 1933 allowed the police to identify, then purge Moscow's streets of filth and clean the dirt off the face of our cities fluttered populations were viewed as matter out of place. This language extended to politics as well. Enemies were often called weeds, vermin, pollution, scum, garbage, and filth. Soviet newspapers called for the purification of the party's ranks. Social trash and literal trash were both targeted for removal. 
During the terror, the police demanded its victims to come clean and confess to get rid of the filth they had fallen into. As Grigory Pyatikov stated at the end of his trial in 1937, and here I stand before you in filth, crushed by my own crimes. If you take it to extreme, the society is supposed to be perfect, it's supposed to be pure. It's kind of like a, a recipe for a sort of metaphorical OCD. You just can't get your hands clean. It's something really, you just keep washing them again and again. Maybe there's a stain of shit somewhere you have to get out. So that basically at some point, the only avenue left is just to keep cleaning, 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 purging, purging, purging. And so ultimately, you're just going to purge yourself to death. This cleansing of social space extended to language and literature. Remember in episode one when the NKVD ordered vulgarity to be struck from reports on jokes? It was similar for socialist realist literature. Socialist realism was the official art form in the USSR. It was based on idealized realistic themes that pointed to a communist utopia. You found it in all the arts, but primarily in literature. Its purpose was not to represent reality as it exists, but as it will exist in the future. And this will exist is important. Many of the plans to make Moscow anew spoke of tomorrow. One German visitor recalled that he had only two street maps to navigate Moscow in the mid-1930s, one from 1925 and the other a recently published atlas of what the capital would look like in the 1940s. Now, the center got its facelifts and tummy tucks, but most of its residents remained mired in muck. Their palaces would be built on a distant tomorrow. Writers were given a special responsibility to raise Soviet man from the dirt. They were the engineers of the human soul. Their stories were to provide templates for new Soviet golems. And to do so, literature had to be scrubbed clean of human ick. The first Writers' Congress in 1934, which officially adopted socialist realism, forbade representations of sex and the lower bodily functions. Human waste was struck from the official literary imagination. The notion of shit, the notion of excrement, it really is hard to find explicitly, say, in socialist realism. And that repression is in itself productive, so that what happens is that the people later who look at official Soviet culture, in particular Stalin's culture and socialist realism, they, they bring back the repressed here and they, they focus on the shit. Two writers that stand out here are Vladimir Voinovich and Vladimir Sorokin. Voinovich's The Extraordinary Adventures of Private Chunkin tells of the most expendable soldier as he guards a crashed plane in some backwater village during World War II. Among the many colorful characters Chunkin meets is the agronomist Gladyshev. The scientist reveres the circular nature of shit. He collects it in jars and pots and conducts experiments by combining human and animal to find the most potent fertilizer. Gladyshev is so taken with the possibilities of crap, he hopes one day it will be accepted as food, not filth. Gladyshev explains to Chunkin. We usually react to shit as if it were something bad. But if we think about it, it could be the most valuable substance on earth because all life comes from shit and returns to shit. The ground must be fertilized with shit for a good harvest. All the herbs, grains, and fruit that we and the animals eat grow out of shit. The animals give us milk, meat, wool, and all the rest of it. We use it all and then change it back into shit again. That's the origin of, how should I put it? The circulation of shit in nature. Gladyshev then adds, Wouldn't it be better to get over our biases and use shit in its pure form as a wonder vitamin? At first, we could remove its natural smell, and then, when we're used to it, leave it just the way it is. But this task belongs to the distant future and the future exploits of science. I propose we drink a toast to the success of our science, to Soviet power, and to the person of Comrade Stalin, a genius of worldwide fame. The duo raise a glass. How's the homebrew? The agronomist asks. First-rate stuff, says Chunkin. You make it from grain or from beetroot? From shit, Vanya, Gladyshev answers with pride. It's a very simple recipe. You take a kilo of sugar and a kilo of shit. Voinovich returns to this shit utopia theme in his dystopic novel, Moscow 2042, and takes it to the extreme. 
And one of the things that's going on is there's this complete preoccupation with this idea of turning in your uh, secondary matter, which is shit, in order to get um, primary matter, which is food, served to you. And that the entire economy seems to be based on this shit for food exchange. But Elliot says that when it comes to scatlet, the king of socialist shit is Vladimir Sorokin, who very early in his career starts writing these parodies of socialist realism that take the what he perceives as the logic of socialist realism and Stalinism to its extreme. So in his in an early work from, I think, the early 80s, Norma, the norm, or the uh, the ration, basically, everybody has a certain ration of shit that they have to eat every day. And so these uh, later people who are critiquing it using the devices of socialism, um, one of the things they simply do is add the stuff that's left out. And one of those things that's left out is shit. Strangely enough, imagining utopia as consuming shit is not beyond the pale, as an episode of Star Trek Discovery revealed. It doesn't quite taste like the real thing, does it? I've never eaten a real apple. Well, how sad. Apples are a thing of beauty. If you want to talk about oppression, you should start in your own mess hall. It's made of our shit, you know. That's the base material that we use in our replicators. We deconstruct it to the atomic level and then reform the atoms. It's pretty good for shit. And we don't have to commit atrocities for it. Stalinist culture itself is shit. If you consider all the propaganda, all the gaudy slogans, the garishness of the Stalin cult, the sappy declarations of happiness, and the romantic utopianism of New Moscow. Stalinism is kitsch. And, Elliot says, this is best captured in Milan Kundera's definition. Kitsch is the absolute denial of shit. His notion of kitsch as a denial of, of shit really does work very well for Soviet culture, both for the aggressive enthusiasm of Soviet culture, say in the Stalin times, and the kind of sanitized happiness that really is in such a conscious to what is actually happening. Everybody's happy and, and we're having all these wonderful comedies under Stalin while people are being shot and sent to the gulag. The real stuff is being repressed is like the shit that's being repressed. Let's do a quick recap. Human waste is discarded, removed from sight, and sniff. Flush and forget is the slogan of modernity. And purity is part and parcel of utopia. All waste must be removed from the social body, Stalinist Russia being an extreme example. But remember, crap has a circular history. What is expelled as waste can be returned to production. It's part of the cycle of life. Everyone shits. The pinched turd is a reminder of our humanity. And that, my dear listener, brings us back to our turd gift to Stalin. I pose the idea to Elliot. <laughs> a gift. Like, like in the sense of like a, the, the Freudian child who's, who's like, Mom, look what I made. If the goal here isn't actually to determine empirical truth, and if we throw that out the window, then speculating wildly using our various interpretive frameworks and the symbolic connections make, that's wonderful. And uh, there's so much you can do here, as long as you don't have the burden of proof. This was my original idea, with Stalin being the all-father of the USSR, the giver of happiness. Then every poo was a thank you gift. Not unlike Freud's idea that a child's first shit is a gift to their parents. But that original idea evolved as I researched this story, and it led me to a Soviet writer who thought a lot about excrement, waste, filth, and excretion. Andrei Platonov. So there's so much going on with Platonov. On the one hand, Platonov is the great thinker and writer who exposed the underside of Soviet utopianism from the inside because he really, really believed it. On the other hand, there is no one more idiosyncratic in the Soviet canon than, than Platonov. Platonov is so profoundly weird. So, well, on the one hand, you can use it with just, you know, in a sense, diagnose Soviet culture. On the other hand, you have to remember that you are dealing with this kind of literary freak of nature. Born in 1899, Andrei Platonov is considered the most brilliant Russian writer of the 20th century. The son of a railway worker and the eldest of 10 kids, Platonov grew up in a village outside of Voronezh. He was an early supporter of the Bolsheviks and participated in literary circles in the 1920s. Unlike many of Russia's great writers, he was of pure proletarian stock. He once declared that proletarian art will be ugly, and proletarians like him grow out of the earth out of all its filth, and everything that is on the earth is on us as well. Platonov was also a trained electrical engineer and land reclamation specialist. 
so technology, nature, waste, and the power of socialism to transform them featured prominently in his writing. But he also fretted over the ecological consequences of Soviet Prometheanism. By the early 1930s, Platonov became increasingly skeptical of the possibility of Soviet utopia. Platonov's work is complex, and I won't pretend to capture it all here, but one issue that critics note is Platonov's ambiguous relationship with utopia. Because while he is horrified by the excesses of Stalinism, he's so sad. He's so sad that this is not working because he coming at this from a from the point of view of a true believer. And I think deep down still wants it to work somehow, um, even though it's clearly not going to be working. Dirt, filth and waste are central to Platonov's disillusionment. Platonov treats waste similar to what we've been talking about here. Filth is both a life-giving substance and a problem for utopia. You can find this theme in many of his stories, but I'll just focus on one, his unfinished novel, Happy Moscow. Written sometime between 1933 and 1936, Happy Moscow follows Moscow Ivanovna Chesnova. Her name is a stand-in for the capital and Soviet collectivity as a whole. Her name, Moscow, is to honor the capital. The patronymic, Ivanovna, is for all the Ivans who perished for Soviet power, and Chesnova for her earnest heart. She's a beautiful Stalinist everywoman making her way from calamity to calamity and from lover to lover. Peppered throughout are images of waste, excrement, urine, pus, and filth. He turns the Soviet lack of attention to the body around and, and has all these emaciated bodies, starving people, miserable people, his own works, real lack of comfort with the human body that turns into kind of um, immersing oneself into the, into the absolute grossness of it. There's a kind of return of the repressed here. We see this immersion in Sartorius, one of Moscow's lovers. Here's a clip from a radio performance of Happy Moscow. Sartorius is so infatuated with Moscow that if she squatted to pee, tender tears would trickle down his cheeks. Nothing about Moscow disgusts Artorius. Even her turds captivate him, since they had once been a part of such a splendid person. Waste literally or symbolically stands for so much in Happy Moscow. I'll just give a few more examples from the story. Waste serves as both a source for life and tragedy. In terms of life, in a famous passage, the surgeon Sambinkin locates the human soul in the intestines, somewhere between undigested food and shit. Sambinkin also believes that there's a substance excreted upon death that holds the key to immortality. He's obsessed with harnessing its life-giving powers. Death's first shit, the secreted substance, is life's nourishment. Eliot says that with such imagery, Platonov... But I think also by locating it between these two things... That is, the intestines between undigested food and shit. It reduces the soul, right? It, it, um, the soul is between food and shit. It's sort of like that old saying about we're born between urine and excrement, right? This saying, attributed to St. Augustine, is a reminder that we're all born covered in filth. No one is clean. So to designate some humans as dirt and filth for removal is to deny the very nature of humanity. And a true humanistic communism cares for all, even those still mired in the social and ideological muck. This speaks to another filth-filled theme in Happy Moscow. The novel is set at the peak of Stalinist civilization. A new Soviet elite has emerged. But for Platonov, these new Soviet men and women have lost their way. They are a little different than their bourgeois forefathers. Soviet happiness is a life of frivolity, sex, food, drink, and partying. Triumphant socialism is kitsch and full of shit. Also, Platonov asks, what of those who don't fit in this pristine utopia? The weird, the dispossessed, the depressed, the disabled, the ill, and the filthy. How are they to be happy in their miserable existence as social waste? 
The Stalinist solution is to cast out the ideologically impure and eliminate the social and political waste. But for Platonov, excising this waste, waste we're all born from and that should be reclaimed and reincorporated, this only leads to destruction. Stalin's bulimic socialism will purge itself to death. If Soviet writers were to engineer souls, then Platonov is like St. Peter, standing at the gates of communist heaven, judging those souls as they file in. Yeah, there is a great deal of disillusionment here, but where I'm uncomfortable with focusing too much on the disillusionment, even though I do that myself, what I don't like is when people go so far enough to terms of kind of proto-dissidents, and that emotional investment in the process while still critiquing it is something that you don't see in dissident literature. And here, he's still kind of in love. So when we consider all of this, our turd to Stalin suggests something more than an insult. It's a gift, a token to remind the dictator not to forget the shit. Don't deny the filth. To do so is to turn socialism into kitsch, or to self-destruction. Because filth is a part of us, and a part of you too, Comrade Stalin. The utopian future cannot be one that disavows poo. Utopia is supposed to incorporate all, and to excise the filth is to sever humans from the product of their most unmediated labor, their own shit, that is, their own humanity. But wait a second, I almost forgot. Remember in episode one I said that one of the shit documents is a lab report on the turd? Well, it turns out that the chemical analysis was inconclusive. There just wasn't enough left to get a clear read. And Stalin's lab rats couldn't decide if it was a turd or sausage. That certainly tells you something about the quality of meat in the USSR. But also, perhaps the Soviet Union had achieved utopia after all. Food and shit were one and the same, and the metabolic rift mended. A Gift for Stalin was written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Voiceovers by Maya Haber and Greg Weinstein. Music by Alvaro Antin, Harry Edvino, Future Joust, Ludwig Molin, Stationary Sign, and Simeon Slepakov. Thanks to Elliot Borenstein and Lena Zeldovich for participating, and to Maya Haber for her ears. For a list of sources consulted for a gift for Stalin, go to the Eurasian Knot at yuranot.org. Yeah.